Uh, our scripture reader today is Dan Wanshura, and uh, he is reading Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Uh, in honor of God's word, let's stand together. Good morning, everyone. Listen as I read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So we are uh, in a series, and this is just week two of it, um, on, on the book, uh, on the chapter, uh, the eighth chapter of, of Romans. And we gave it a little subtitle, and the subtitle is Exploring the Life and Love that Jesus Offers. Uh, last Sunday, we took uh, the entire service to try to give a little bit of a context uh, for uh, what, has, what, what, what the uh, author of Romans, his name is Paul, uh, what, what he's trying to accomplish over the course of this book and what has been the lead up to, to chapter 8. And uh, I'm going to reference a little bit of that again today. Uh, but if you want to, to try to join us in the, the context, in the, in, in the sense of the setting of Romans chapter 8, uh, you can hop on our website and listen to, uh, listen to last week's uh, sermon. Uh, but over the course of these eight weeks in this series, we are hoping to explore the life and the love uh, that Jesus offers. Uh, last Sunday, I said that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is maybe one of the most prolific commentators on, Romans 8, uh, on the book of Romans, uh, he referred to Romans 8 as the brightest gem of, of, of the entire of the entire Bible. And so this chapter, in his mind, stood out as uh, just, it's a large chapter, and just the nature of, of what it offers us and the breadth of what it offers us uh, is, is quite, quite a gift. And then I used a quote from a guy named Derek Thomas, and he describes Romans 8 uh, as something that shows us how the gospel brings us all the way home. And I think that that language is, is pretty beautiful, too, that over the course of these 39 verses, we see how it is that the gospel brings us all the way home. And if you're familiar with the scope of Romans 8, it touches on everything from origin of your walk with Jesus all the way through uh, what it's like to, to have the realities of eternal, uh, the eternal relationship with, with Jesus. So today, last week was introduction. Today is verses uh, 1 through 4. And uh, the title is no, no Condemnation. So as you just heard uh, read, you know, in verse, in verse 1, uh, there's uh, some, some pretty dynamic uh, language. The opening phrase is a phrase that uh, a lot of people over the course of the last 2,000 years have, have just found to be like life-giving, kind of like, like uh, encouraging a declaration of their reality of walking with Christ. And it starts off by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's a powerful, powerful declaration. But if you notice there in verse 1, it, it uses the word now. And so, so Paul is saying something has happened. Something amazing has happened. And as we looked at last week, uh, over the course of the first seven chapters of, of Romans, uh, what we find out, is that those first seven chapters tell us another declaration. They tell us that we are both guilty and we are condemned. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that all are in this condition. All have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapters 1 and chapters 2 explore uh, some of the dynamics that play in the world that reveal this this truth. Uh, But in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, there's just that stark statement. All, everybody, everybody has sinned. And so there's this sense in which we're all guilty. And as you get in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 18, you find out that we're all condemned. And so you think, well, this, what does this word mean? What is this idea of condemnation? It means that we've been charged, we've been convicted, and we've been sentenced. And the sentence is eternal death. Now look, I, I recognize that this is a scandalous declaration. It's been a scandal the whole journey. It's a scandal today. There, there's a lot of us that feel really uncomfortable hearing that kind of a proclamation, that kind of a declaration that we have been condemned, that we are all guilty of sinning, that we, are all, uh, we have all been sentenced to eternal death. That is a scandal. So if you're, if you're uncomfortable right now, like, welcome to the club. This, this, is, this should be scandalous. You, you should feel this deeply. It's, it's a heavy reality. And it points to the severity of the price of sin. And I know there's a lot of temptations here. You know, one of the most common is especially if you have spent time thinking about what the Bible says about who God is, what the Bible says about God's power and God's greatness. It is really tempting to when you hear something about the severity of sin, to have something going on in your mind that might be like this. Why can't God just get over it? Why can't he just get over it? Why can't he just forgive us and let's move on? Like, I thought he was all-powerful. Like, how come, how come this has to be so bad? Can't he just, you know, snap his fingers? Can't he just blink his eyes? Can't he just say something and fix this? Why can't he just get over it? Really what you're saying is, why can't the price be smaller? Why can't the price of sin be smaller? Well, two two quick thoughts on that. First, there are a whole lot of things that I wish the price was smaller on. Can I get an amen? Like lakefront property might be in that category. It'd be awfully nice for the price to be cheaper on a lot of things. And so we could argue about the price, but honestly, that that won't do much good. Second thought is, think about what is happening on the pages of the Bible Think about what's happening from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation. Isn't it true that page after page, book after book, God is revealing to us why the price is so high? In in the third chapter of Genesis, right early in the Bible, when sin shows up, we are immediately told that shalom has been broken. That shalom means that everything was right. Everything worked like it should. Every relationship was just as it should be. Creation in perfect relationship with its creator. Creation in perfect relationship with creation. And when sin broke in, in Genesis chapter 3, it broke all of that. It was vandalized. It is, creation is infected. You know, in some ways, sin is like the worst version of cancer. Cancer requires painful uh, it, it, it produces painful effects as well as painful uh, treatments. Uh, just yeah, this past Friday, we uh, didn't celebrate it. We recognized the five-year anniversary of the loss of, of my wife's dad. 
And uh, he, he, he was diagnosed with cancer and went through the journey of all the treatments. And, uh, and, and, and in large part, we lost him because of the complications of those treatments. I, I know some of you are walking through that journey yourself. Some of you are walking through that journey with someone that you love. It would be right for us all to say together, I hate cancer. I hate the physical, the emotional, the financial cost of cancer treatments. And we can hate that, and we should hate that, and we hate the price of that. But don't you long for healing? Don't you pray for healing? Don't, 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 whether it's in your body or in the body of someone you love, don't you want it gone? Like full, complete healing? And as we read the story of the Bible, we are, relate, we, we are invited to see that the seriousness of sin is something that we can't actually avoid And even if we can't fully comprehend why it's so bad, why it's so integrated into this world, it would be right for our hearts to long for complete healing. For for sin, just like we long for cancer to be taken out, we want sin and all of its effects, including the brokenness of the world that we experience in cancer. We want it all gone. Sin has terrible consequences. And the price tag of sin is so, so serious. It is separation. That's immediately what happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve engaged in sin, and immediately there was separation. Separation between each other, Adam and Eve. Separation between them and God. And when God meets with them, he says, it's worse than you could ever know. It's worse than you could ever think. It's infected everything. The price tag is serious. God is full of kindness, but sin is not a simple thing. And God throughout the Bible is telling us time and time again, sin is not a simple thing. There's a passage in Exodus 34 that I I love. And in verse 6, this interaction with the Lord and Moses, and uh, this is the, the language. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that good news? Such glorious stuff. But then if you keep reading, it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's a justice issue related to sin. And this God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Sin has consequences and it's, it's needed itself so deeply into the fabric of the world in which we live, so deeply into the hearts in which we have. It's not a simple thing. And yet... Here we are with Paul, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation. How can that be? But Paul is saying, If you have put your faith in Jesus, then he really has made you right. No more condemnation. You are free, as he talks about in the next verses. 
I want you to remember the flow that we talked about last week. The flow of the first five chapters of Romans. And they'll be on the screen behind me. But just follow his argument. These aren't broken up exactly chapter by chapter, but they're pretty close. Chapter one, everyone needs to be right. Everyone needs to be made right. Chapter two, no one can make themselves right. Chapter three, only Jesus can make you right. Chapter four, only faith in Jesus will make you right. In chapter five, anyone can be. The door is wide open. He says there was this, this first Adam that blew it, but then Christ showed up and Christ has is, is, is offered the solution and it's made available to all people, not just to the Jewish people, to all people, not just one group, to everybody. And so here is this, this argument that Paul has been laying out, this explanation of the beauty of the gospel. And part of what he's helping us see is that this idea of being made right, you know, the word justification means to be declared right. And justification is like the inverse of condemnation. To be condemned is to be declared wrong, to be declared guilty. Justification is to be declared right. And so Paul, over the course of these chapters, is saying, you desperately need to be declared right. And let me just tell you something. You're not declared right in of yourself. Everybody needs it. Nobody can earn it. Only Christ can do it. Only faith in Christ will do it. And it's open to everybody. So this condemnation that sin has brought into the world, there is an answer. This wrongness that has been brought into the world, there is an answer you can have rightness. It's available. It's available in Christ. How do you get part of that? Faith in Christ. You see, Jesus is committed to his putting it right project. And he wants to start with your heart. He's at work in all kinds of places. But he wants your heart made right. He's at work in the world. He's nowhere near being done. But has the beauty of what Christ has done pierced your heart yet? Have you felt the reality of this sin and the price tag of this sin? Have you realized that there is, everybody needs to be made right, but nobody can fix it themselves? It's offered in Christ. Have you been made right by faith in Jesus? It's the way to be free from condemnation. Well, that's true. And there's a reason why that declaration is so, I mean, such good news. It's uh, the fact that we call ourselves sinners, the fact that the world is declared as broken, as full of sin. That's a scandal. And this good news about what Jesus offers us is the solution. But there is a problem that I think a lot of us can relate to. In verse, chap- in verse 2, Paul goes on to tell us that the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and the law of death. And the, what he's using the word law here, he just means a rule or a principle. So he's saying that this, this idea or this principle of sin, this principle of death, the Spirit sets us free from that. And that is such good news. But how are you doing? How are you doing? I, I, I think verse 2 is great. That's good news that we've been set free from the law of sin and death. But then I live 24 hours. And it's like, well, hang on a second here. You know? What, Paul, in chapter 7, walks us through this complexity of trying to navigate life. Paul, in chapter 7, reveals to us that we are conflicted people, that we are misaligned people, 
that the things that we say we want to do are the things that we don't do. The things that we say we're not going to do are the things that we end up doing. And so Paul is being honest with us. He's inviting us into this conflict, into this hypocrisy that dwells in our hearts. And if you can feel that hypocrisy, if you can feel that conflict, that misalignment, like, welcome to the club. But it's not a comfortable club. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, these things are extremely disruptive. See, we can be told that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But do you believe that? What are we to do about the ongoing problem of sin every stinking day? What are we supposed to do with that? In those moments when you realize that you have lived uh, in an inconsistent way, that you have been a hypocrite, are you tempted to try to find something else, something additional that makes you feel justified, something else that makes you feel right? Some people refer to this as the performance cycle. You place your faith in Christ, and you believe that you are no longer condemned because passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tell you that you are no longer condemned, that you've been forgiven, that you've been set free, and then you sin. And you sit there and you start to think, uh-oh, maybe I'm condemned again. Maybe I've messed this up. Maybe I've got to do something. And so you try to clean yourself up. And you try to do a whole bunch of good deeds. And then you assume that somewhere in that process, you like slip back into good standing with Jesus until you sin again. And then you say, wait, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not free of condemnation. Maybe, maybe I, I have to do something again. And the cycle keeps repeating. Have, have you been there? My guess is that a lot of us have been there. We are told that we are made right with God by Christ but we don't feel right, so we try to fix ourselves. Jack Miller, who was this legendary pastor uh, in, in, in Philadelphia, and the reason I know he's legendary is because the number of people that he had as mentees, the number of people that he has poured into that have scattered all over the United States and the world, uh, it's an incredible legacy that Jack Miller has left behind, and we have used some of Jack Miller's resources in our church um, uh, over, over the course of, of years. And just this week, I was reminded of a language that he uses, and he calls these religious cushions. And he says, he, he says that churches can cooperate, this, cooperate in this uh, in, in, a, in a major way. But he refers to these things as religious cushions. And he says these are things that comfort us uh, they, 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 they give us a sense of like, this makes me feel right. This makes me feel comfortable. This makes me feel justified. This makes me feel right. And here's uh, just uh, three of them that he offers. One is how a lot of conservative people try to make themselves feel justified. They try to feel right by having accurate doctrine, by having all of their theological accuracy, they feel right by being doctrinally correct and by feeling like everyone else is wrong, too. I've, I've lived it. I know that that's true. <laughs> um, the second cushion would be maybe what you would put in the category of, of, of more liberal Christians. And they often will come to some sort of a conclusion that God is too nice to send people to hell. And so they basically comfort themselves. Their cushion 
is they feel right by saying it's all right. By just downplaying it. It's all right. God wouldn't do that. It's okay. We have a kind God. Well, we do have a kind God. Third cushion he references. It might, you might call it the sacramental. This would be like liturgical churches where songs, rituals, things that they repeatedly say, things that they repeatedly do, smells that they smell, feelings that they feel, that all of those things work together to create this environment where it's like, we're doing it right. Like, this is the right way to do church. This is the right way to worship God. These are the things that you do to have access to God. This is how we are right. And Jack Miller, as, as you would assume, navigates those things and identifies the fact that there's some truth components in, in, in each of those things. Accurate theology, that's a good thing. Celebrating the kindness of God, that's a good thing. Having a way in which you organize your worship gatherings to where it orients us and helps us to see the goodness and glory of God, to actually have things that are in the category of, of ritual to where we find avenues that, that uh, prepare our heart and position our heart to receive from God. Th th these things can all be good things. But the reason why Jack Miller calls them religious cushions is because he's saying that you're using it to try to comfort yourself. You're using it to try to say, this is how I know I'm right. What does Paul say? Paul says we're right because of Jesus. You see, the temptation here is that we look to Jesus to save us, but then we look to ourselves or our performance for our acceptance. You see, whether it's the overt sin of rebellion doing life our own way, or the more subtle sin of self-righteousness, trying to earn God's favor, we are still pretty messed up in the day-to-day. -day. Paul can declare there's no condemnation, but do you feel that? Is that your daily experience? For a lot of us, the answer is no. Well, as we come to verses 3 and 4, Paul revisits some ideas that are also in the category of scandalous. If we were to just summarize what's been going on so far, there is this scandal that there can be no condemnation. So it starts with a scandal that you're sinful, that you're guilty, but then there's a scandal that you could actually be forgiven. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus really did take it all. Paul means that condemnation doesn't even exist for the Christian anymore. It doesn't even exist anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus literally took it all upon himself in our place. This is the declaration of what happened on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of our sin, all of it, past, present, and yeah, wait for it, future. All of our sin Every bit of it. Jesus took all the sin that you will ever commit, that you have committed, that you are committing, that you will commit. He took all of it. He took every single drop. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are now free from the penalty of what that sin has, deserves. The penalty of eternal separation. The penalty of death. 
And as Jesus interacts with us, as the Spirit interacts with us, there is this faithfulness that he has towards us in light of all of our sin. Look, Jesus knows more about your sin than you do. He knows more about what's going on in your heart than you do. I know that many of us have, have, have worked hard to try to be honest before the Lord, to address our sin, to lay our hearts bare, to do things like David did in the Old Testament and said, God, search me and show me my sin. I know we've done that, but guess what? You've not gotten to the bottom of the barrel. I can guarantee you, you have not gotten to the bottom of the barrel. Jesus knows more about your sin than you do. And guess what? He does not blink. He doesn't turn away from you. There's this little book called The Cure, and it's a, it's a fictionalized story, of course, but it's, it's trying to invite us into what it's like to, to, to find forgiveness in Christ. And there's a scene in that book where this guy uh, envisions all of his sin and all of his brokenness as a mound, like a physical pile of sin. And he looks at it, and he realizes it's like a mountain. And he runs into Jesus, and his sin is behind Jesus, and Jesus doesn't see it yet. And this guy is kind of freaking out because he thinks uh, Jesus is super nice here, but if he sees that, like it's not going to work out. And as the scene unfolds, Jesus eventually puts his arm around this man, and they turn around, and they stare at the pile of sin. And Jesus says something like, whoa, you've got a pile. Jesus doesn't quit on him. Jesus doesn't run away. Jesus knew about the pile. Jesus knew about that mountain of sin better than that guy did. And it's a picture. It's, it's, it's just an invitation for us to maybe consider how gracious and amazing this, this freedom that Jesus offers us is. Another way to think about this is that when, when we are forgiven, we referenced this in our prayer time this morning, but when we are forgiven, the Bible actually says that God takes our sin and puts it as far, as, a far, away, as, far away as the east is from the west. He, he, he puts it away and he remembers it no more. So think about this. When you come to God and you're dealing with your sin and you say, God, I did that again. God says something like, again, did what again? You believe that? You believe God puts your sin that far away to where when you've done the same thing 50 times and you come to him and he actually says again? It's true and it's a scandal and it's crazy. How does he do it? Well, look at verse 3. In verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law, and this time he means the Mosaic law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How could he do it? Well, God did what we couldn't do. God did what the law couldn't do. God provided for us in the most extreme way. God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, who came as the God-man, to represent humanity. Anselm was a, uh, a church father back in the 11th century, and, and he said this, in order for Jesus to represent God to us, he had to be truly God. In order for Jesus to represent us to God, he had to be truly human. And that's exactly who he is. 
He is the God-man, 100% God in all of his holiness and beauty, and 100% man as a representative of humanity. And he came, and as it says in verse 3, he came, and as, uh, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Jesus came as the offering, as the payment, as the solution for our most fundamental problem. He came as the offering for sin. He came as the offering. He was the actual offering. Jesus paid it all. Verse 3 is incredible, and it fuels a really legitimate response. And here's a possible response. Oh, if grace is that amazing, if Jesus doesn't really blink, if when I sin the same sin again, he says, what, again? What do you mean? If that's all true, if this scandal is that true, then it must not matter what I do. There's a term. The term is antinomianism. Antinomian. That that means against the law. It means no moral norms. It means license to live however you want to live. And over the course of of these 2,000 years that the, the world has been digesting the scandal of the gospel, antinomianism has been a temptation more than once. This conclusion that if the grace is that great, then it must not matter what I can do. I'm in Christ. There's no condemnation. I will live however I want to live. Now let me say something. If you are not at least tempted to believe this, then you don't realize the full scandal of the gospel. You should be more tempted by antinomianism than you are. If you sit there and shake your head and say, antinomians, you're not tasting the scandal here. It really is this scandalous. It's really saying what it's saying. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul knows how, how tempting this is. If you jump back to Romans chapter 5, the way that Romans chapter 5 ends is the same kind of scandal. It's this craziness about the fact that because Adam brought sin, Christ brings justification, and it's available to you. And it's like Paul knows exactly what we're going to do with that. And he's thinking, I know what you're doing. So chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we do then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound? No way. No way. I understand your instincts there. I understand. I, the grace is that amazing. But that is such a miss. It's such a misunderstanding of what God's actually about in you and in the world. Concluding that our actions don't matter is a logical conclusion. Because the grace really is that's scandalous. But there's a better way. Verse 3 is incredible, but why did God do verse 3? Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now there's two possible uh, meanings to that phrase, that the law might be fulfilled in us. One is that it might be fulfilled in us, meaning Christ did it for us. And so he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law because we couldn't. 
He, did, he fulfilled the law so we don't have to. And that is, that is true. Christ did it for us. What, what we couldn't do, Christ did for us. But the second possible meaning is the more likely meaning here. And that is that because of what Christ has done in us, we can now, in him, live in line with God's good way. That we can actually fulfill the law through grateful obedience, through the Spirit, that God is at work in us. He has made us new. He has taken away all condemnation. He has given us the Spirit and the Spirit of freedom. And he says, now guess what you're free to do? You're free to actually live out this good design in, in grateful obedience for the rest of your life. That you're actually captivated. If God is this good of a gift giver, then can't you trust them? If he would do this for you, if he would give you his own son, then can you trust him in regard to how he lays out life? What if his design for your life is actually the good life? What if our wanters are actually broken and the things that you say, I get to do whatever I want, that's not actually good for you? What if what God lays out as his good design is actually the good life? Well, that's the, make, that's the case the Bible was making. That's what you are invited into. It's what we're going to get to explore in many ways over these next few weeks. This is an invitation to a better way, a better way than license or carelessness or being driven by your wants and your desires. It's actually a willingness to say that God is at work in me to make me new, to change the desires of my heart, to align me with how he says this world should work, show me what is right and good, that I can actually live in a culture that's saturated with things that are contrary to God's good design, and I can actually go against the current and trust him and walk in obedience even while I love my neighbor. It, it, it is an incredible invitation that God offers his people. He invites us to actually see that his way is good and walk in it with joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these, these first four verses and for this uh, opening salvo. What, what, what powerful language is here? The scandal that we actually are convicted, that we actually are condemned. The greater scandal that we can be forgiven by the, by the, by the, uh, the gift of another. This good news that this freedom from condemnation is, it is for real. It really is a, a, a clean slate that Jesus really does take every drop of our sin. God, this news is, is too good for us. We, we often think it can't be that good. And yet it is. God, would you let us to see you from that perspective? Would you allow this good news about Jesus to change the way that we see everything else you tell us? And that we would live lives out of grateful obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.